This is Oren Herskowitz, Executive Director of Columbia Technology Ventures at Columbia University in the city of New York. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Elisa Kanafagu. Um, the connection's a little shaky in places, but I think you'll be able to make this out. Um, Dr. Kanafagu's research is super interesting. She works in ultrasound, as she's got a joint appointment at the engineering school and also the medical center. And you'll see why, um, because her work focuses not only on the imaging possibilities of ultrasound, which is the way that most of us have interacted with ultrasound as a patient, um, but also is the therapeutic ways that ultrasound can be used, including using sort of vibration and heat to burn parts of the brain intentionally to help with Parkinson's uh, side effects, but also to uh, open up the blood-brain barrier and get drugs into the brain, even though our bodies are designed to stop that from happening. It's a fascinating conversation. Dr. Kanafagu, thanks for joining us today. You've mentioned in a prior interview, you said, um, quote, ultrasound can do everything. And, and I'm curious, what did you mean by that? When, first of all, what is ultrasound? Thank you very much for having me today, Oren. Um, so yes, uh, I have said that in the past. And ultrasound is sound, is very much like the sound that we hear every day uh, from walking out in the street, uh, Look, listening to people talking or, or the cars honking and oh, to music. Uh, but it is at, uh, is this something that we cannot use for what I'm working on and my lab is working on that is imaging at the human scale level. Uh, and that's because the waves or the wavelength, which is what characterizes the waves. So how long is the, the distance? between two uh, maxima or two peaks uh, is too long to scale it to what uh, the human scale is, which is basically uh, usually a humans come in a meter or a two meter height. And we have to scale uh, the uh, waves to uh, much smaller so we can image them uh, at a high resolution, which means uh, high quality images. Uh, and having the actual crispiness that comes with uh, looking inside a human or a patient, uh, which uh, typically requires that uh, the wavelength is on the order of a one thousandth of a meter, a millimeter. Basically, in order to, if I'm understanding you correctly, in order to get it to be a crisp enough image, you essentially need to shorten the waves from peak to peak. And that allows you to do what? Like how, as a, if I've been a patient in a hospital, which many of us have, where might we encounter an ultrasound machine? And, and, is, and if it's not ultrasound, what else are people using to image the human body? So ultrasound, as I said in my interview, is everywhere in the clinic. <laughs> uh, so basically, uh, you encounter it in the emergency room, for example, if you have a hard time breathing. Typically, uh, one advantage that ultrasound has uh, compared to the other techniques that I'm going to mention in a second is that it can be wheeled uh, to the bedside. That means uh, it can be transported. It's typically on wheels and it can be transported and brought to the patient. So, um, and typically, obviously, the first thing that uh, will be checked with ultrasound in the ER would be the heart. Another advantage that ultrasound has uh, is the speed of sound. 
that means the speed of sound uh, inside our bodies is on the order of one mile a second. So you can get very, very fast image frame rates. That means how fast can you actually see an organ moving? Now, the heart is the fastest moving organ in our body. It keeps us alive at every heartbeat. And you have to have an imaging, an imaging method that you can image fast enough to be able to see the, 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 uh, the, the organ uh, during motion. So that's why it's used, for example, in the emergency room uh, to check for obviously an infarction uh, or any other obstruction um, in the coronaries, for example, in the, in the heart. So it sounds like in many ways, the ultrasound has, has many advantages over these other techniques, but they work together. You, you would use them in different circumstances. But it sounds like if, we're, if I'm in a major academic medical center or you know, getting treated for something and it's not something urgent in the matter of minutes, then an MRI or, or, the, uh, or the CT scan might be appropriate. But if I'm in my doctor's office, um, then I'm probably getting looked at with either an X-ray or an ultrasound, and it and it sounds like the ultrasound has is you know is very portable. Presumably, it's cheaper as well. Is that right? Oh yeah, <laughs> that's something yeah. we have. Yeah, X-ray I think is cheaper than an ultrasound, but after that, yeah, uh, it's ultrasound is the next cheapest modality. Got it. And how did you get interested in ultrasounds in the first place? So I've always, I mean, I've always been fascinated by physics. Um, and, uh, since fifth grade, so I had a very good teacher as usually you have to have in math and physics, um, that, uh, initiates you to those sciences, I feel. Uh, so, so I've been always interested in, um, you know, in the thermal conductivity and, uh, the underlying, uh, materials, how they respond to outside, um, outside, uh, phenomena. And uh, when I uh, was interested also in biomedical engineering um, after the, I, I remember, I think vividly when I first came to the States. So I'm originally from Greece and my mom was uh, doing her uh, postdoctorate um, in Boston in economics. And she thought, you know, I'm bringing my kids along. And I was 12 at the time. I had just finished the equivalent of um, sixth grade in Greece. And I was interested in biomedical engineering so that the, the blend between engineering and medicine. And then imaging was always was something that picked up at the graduate level when I did my master's uh, in London, where it fascinated me how you can use physics and engineering on, in that respect, and you convert uh, what you see a phenomenon in with tissues, how, how waves, in this case, obviously, ultrasound waves interact with tissues. And now all of a sudden, you can actually make a picture of that. Uh, which is basically what imaging is. And I think the blend of what I was fascinated in elementary school, physics, and then the, the engineering part that I was exposed to later in, in college and, of course, in, in my graduate studies, is what, uh, is what materialized in my master's thesis as ultrasound uh, processing of premature newborn cardiac images. So how you, act, you can actually uh, evaluate the cardiac function of premature newborn babies, and you can affect their treatment. It sounds like you were interested in the way the tool could be used to solve a challenge. Um, you didn't come at it from the side of what could we do to help premature infants. Is that it, it, it came out of your love for physics? 
Yeah. So actually, I was I, I, my my first degree. I mean, my my bachelor's degree was in physics and chemical physics and biophysics. So actually, I pursued that as a science. I was always fascinated by engineering, but I my love for for the you know underlying science uh, won over for my um, for my undergraduate studies. But I I felt like um, this is where I make you make this choice whether you want to continue in the basic sciences or whether you want to do something more applied in engineering. And I chose the latter because I wanted to make an impact. And I think what makes an engineer is where you start, exactly what you said, making a tool. Like you want to make something, you want to construct something that you can give to somebody, in this case, of course, a doctor, to be able to diagnose better. In this case, obviously, the premature uh, cardiac function, the newborn cardiac function. Um, and I thought that fascinated me at that point. Uh, I, I had I had this idea at 12 years old, as I said, but I, I, I didn't know exactly how to approach it until until it came together um, in my graduate studies. And part of the reason is that there was no biomedical engineering as an undergraduate degree. Uh, I, for, for me, at least in my undergraduate studies, there was no such thing in Greece. There was no such thing in France where I did my undergraduate. And then right where I, you know, when I was, when I, after I graduated, I discovered this master's degree that had just started at Imperial College in London. So part of the reason was that I was not, I didn't have that as a, as an alternative. Was part of you tempted to stay within the basic sciences or did you have mentors who tried to keep you in the sort of the physics world? Um, Or was it as soon as you discovered that engineering existed, that was obviously the right answer for you? So it's never obviously the right answer, you know, and I carry both to this day. And in fact, um, some of my basic scientist colleagues, you know, were mocking engineers and they said, you know, biomedical engineering sounds like there's no science in either in the medical sciences, no, nor in the engineering. So uh, and you can have a very interesting intellectual discussion that I have with my basic scientists, friends and colleagues. And in the end, what you find really in research is that you need every single piece of knowledge that you acquired because especially in highly interdisciplinary sciences, especially like biomedical engineering that brings all the engineering disciplines, you know, chemical, electrical, uh, mechanical, uh, together with all the different disciplines in medicine, like oncology, radiology, you know, cardiology, neurology, immunology, I mean, you can imagine how many combinations there can be in the thousands. <laughs> so then you find yourself completely in awe of what you're trying to basically study. So then you you definitely go back in the sciences as well, which is basically the fundamentals of every medical science, every biological science, and every engineering science. So I think you need every single piece of knowledge that you have been able to amass to be able to tackle any one of these problems. I see a fair number of faculty at Columbia that have dual appointments or might be housed in one school, but actually have an appointment in another. Do you find that that kind of cross-disciplinary work is enabled at Columbia and encouraged? Absolutely. And uh, I have to say, I uh, every time I go to another university campus and I see, you know, for example, the medical school being physically remote, um, meaning 20 minutes away, 
uh, but no, no chance that you can ever get a lab like the one I have in the medical center, for example, and finding people that put, uh, for example, in our field, their scanners in the van. And then literally I was talking last week, I had gave a seminar and uh, they were telling me how they have to, you know, to push their scanners and their systems, their equipment on a ramp. <laughs> And, you know, every every time you have to do an experiment on a, to a patient, you have to do that. So, it, 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 and the logistics, one. The second part that Columbia offers is, of course, the great minds that are here. And the third part is that these great minds also have uh, protected time for research. So, uh, the combination of that, of being able to take the elevator, literally, I don't know, to the two floors down and talk to the word expert, for example, in Parkinson's disease, um, it gives you, it opens huge doors because you literally have your expert at your front door. And that Columbia, I think, it offers uh, to a T. So, and it's the strength, I think, of one of the great strengths of this uh, university. It also seems to me that Columbia, perhaps more than many other institutions, does have this focus on having real-world impact. H- how important is it to you to see your research actually get put out there into the real world? Has it been harder or easier than you thought it might be? So it has been both harder and easier. And I know it sounds very paradoxical, but um, there are some projects like, for example, the you know, the blood-brain barrier project that we've been working on for a while now that actually was, you know, was born at Columbia for me because um, uh, so just the blood-brain barrier is something that, uh, you know, we it's a big, you know, obstacle right now for brain drug delivery. So that means you're trying to get drugs into the brain. And because of the uh, formidable defense that the brain has so that it can defend itself from bacteria, viruses, and all that, it has this physical barrier that uh, protects us from all kinds of um, uh, toxic molecules, but at the same time, it prevents the the really good drugs that have been developed for, for brain tumors or for Alzheimer's and all that. So we've been, um, something that happened when I joined Columbia 18 years ago was, uh, can we actually do ultrasound in the brain? And one thing that uh, we know about ultrasound is that uh, the first thing you think about is not the brain um, for applications. And that's because um, of the skull that, as you can imagine, is filtering out a lot of the, the waves going in. So one example that is, is this project that uh, Colombia encouraged this type of application that at the time was very groundbreaking. Um, and uh, long story short, through, of course, the funding by NIH, which is very, very important for us, uh, Pivotal, uh, we are now in two clinical trials uh, from basically starting with the idea, of course, doing preclinical studies in animals. Now we're in two clinical trials, one in Alzheimer's, where we try uh, to induce an immune response so that we can uh, reduce amyloid and tau in Alzheimer's patients. And the second clinical trial is through the Cancer Center collaboration for treatment of pediatric brain tumors. And those are ongoing and they're two clinical trials with no companies involved, uh, which basically had to do with uh, uh, labs at Columbia getting together and pulling together the resources and getting those trials going. 
So actually, let me just let me just check here. So in our when we were when we started this conversation, you were talking about the benefits of sound and ultrasound as an imaging uh, tool, as a way to to get better images. And now we're talking about something else. It sounds like you're using ultrasound beyond capturing images, but to actually achieve. Can you explain that a little bit and how that works? So as you started in the beginning asking me about ultrasound, you know, uh, can do everything. In this case, uh, it's basically using waves differently. So the first part of imaging that we, of course, doing in my lab um, uh, also is uh, the mirror reflection. So very similar to what you're looking at the mirror is a reflection of the light waves that go into the mirror, back into your face. So that's where you can see your reflection, literally. The same thing also applies to ultrasound. So that's where we can make images. You send waves into the patient or into the uh, into their organs, and then you get reflection from these organs, and then you can make an image. So that's ultrasound imaging. So now of ultrasound therapy that I touched on for the blood-brain barrier, we're not there to make images. Uh, we use actually in this particular case MRI because MRI is the best technology for brain imaging. Instead, we're trying to induce some effects in the tissue with ultrasound. So very similar to laser that, for example, you can use it uh, to, you know, your la- your presentations, right? You use a laser pointer, right? You point with laser and you show on a PowerPoint presentation, for example, you know, the particular graph that you want the audience to uh, focus on. Now, if you increase the intensity of the laser, you can actually burn the same screen that you're using your laser pointer with. Now, don't worry, the laser pointer <laughs> is not going to no. burn. Or if you're watching Star Wars or, you know, you, can, you know about this, um, the fact that you can also, you know, use your lifesaver to, to burn. Um, so... In the case of ultrasound, you can do this with acoustic waves. And I know it's not as intuitive, but uh, the same wave intensity. So what I say during my ultrasound class is basically somebody whispering in your ear versus somebody screaming in your ear. And we probably, most of us had this, the, the second experience, unfortunately. So you can hear, you can have a ringing after that, or maybe sometimes you cannot hear very well, right? It has a dull sound. Literally, your 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 ear stops hearing as well. So that's an effect that an acoustic wave, uh, in this case, uh, did to your ear. Now, if it was a loud bang, you can also pierce your tympanic membrane. You can pierce your ear, and you can, you know, you can actually, unfortunately, sometimes lose your hearing, right? So all that is from sound. All that is from sound. Now, you can do the same thing with ultrasound because we just said in the beginning of the podcast that ultrasound is sound. Now, when you have a tumor or you have, um, you know, something that you want, you want to cause this effect, you can either uh, acoustically uh, damage it. So that means there's two ways to do this. One is mechanical, very similar to somebody screaming in your ear, or it can be thermal, very similar to laser. You can use ultrasound to boil, to boil tissue. And it's done, uh, yes, it's done now. It's FDA approved uh, and it can be done in the brain. I know it sounds who on who on earth we want to burn the brain. Yeah, that sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it does sound terrible, but let me tell you, if you have an essential tremor, which is a Parkinsonian 
uh, type of condition. And uh, now with ultrasound, you can burn deep into the brain. You can make a very small burn on the order of a millimeter because we just said, you know, that our wavelength is millimeter. So then you can also precisely burn at a millimeter very deep into your in your brain. So on the order of uh, tens of centimeters. And that stops the tremor. I know it sounds like science fiction, but it's happening in, in clinics right now. Uh, instead of, for example, of deep brain stimulation, which is the pacemaker in the brain, that is also an, an outstanding uh, technology, but you carry this pacemaker in the brain forever. So in this case, you just burn and, and the essential tremor goes away. So in our wow. case... We don't want to burn the brain. <laughs> uh, although, again, it's an FDA-approved procedure and works very well for essential tremors. We just want to gently nudge the blood-brain barrier to relax, right? Uh, literally relax its bonds of the proteins that it has and allow the drug to go in. Uh, or in the case of Alzheimer's, induce an immune response to alert the immune system that there is amyloid or tau and for the immune system to attack and take, get rid of that uh, quote-unquote debris in the brain. So when I hear you talking about the blood-brain barrier, it sounds like it's there to keep our brains, um, our central nervous system healthy and to keep out the toxins. And the idea of opening that, um, obviously there's, there's pros and cons to doing that, it seems like, because you're, you're, you're messing with the body's defenses. Why does this work? I assume it's temporary and, and localized or something? Like, how does that, how do you keep our central nervous system safe while achieving the goal of getting drugs into the brain? So we have, obviously, a therapy that uh, uh, we have to be careful uh, making sure that uh, the having the optimal of a therapy, which means maximizing the benefit while lowering the risk. And ultrasound therapy is no different than that. So we want to make it localized, reversible, and non-invasive. So we already have the non-invasive that I didn't stress too much before, which means that we're going through the intact skull and scalp. So we uh, no incisions, no, no opening of the skull. Uh, and then we localize because similar to how you can focus light waves with a magnifying glass, we can also uh, focus acoustic waves. And then uh, that can be on the order of millimeters to centimeters. So very small part of the brain. And we have identified now the parameters. So how exactly, what is the secret sauce, if you will, of how you're going to use the ultrasound, what kind of transmission you're going to do, how, uh, what kind of power you're going to use. And we also use microbubbles, which are bubbles that contain gas that you can uh, inject intravenously through an IV in the patient uh, that accentuate the mechanical aspect and only focus the energy uh, and, and accentuate the mechanical energy where you want to open. And that opening lasts on the order of hours. If you have a slow-release drug, uh, you may want to also do days, and you can do you can do days if you want if you want in a couple of days. It can stay open, but then it closes back. So that means we know that we can use MRI, contrast-enhanced MRI. That means you use a dye that normally does not cross the blood-brain barrier, but you can test the closing of the barrier by re-injecting that dye. I could imagine this happening. You're trying to get the blood-brain barrier to relax. And I could imagine that happening in a variety of ways. It sounds like sound waves can cause vibrations 
or sound waves can cause heat. Um, they could even burn things. And so how, just mechanically, how are you getting the blood-brain barrier to do exactly what you want it to do? So that's a great question. We, uh, we, it took us a while to get there, but we know that it's not thermal and it is mechanical. So unlike the essential tremors where we had a thermal, uh, we intend to thermally ablate, uh, that means burn the tissue. In the case of uh, blood brain barrier opening, we want to engage the barrier. So we want the barrier to vibrate. When the barrier vibrates, uh, it, uh, it becomes more permeable. That means more loose. And they, that is happening with these microbubbles that I mentioned uh, that are uh, administered IV. They're vibrating at the frequency of the ultrasound. So they're basically are like little drums in the brain. And uh, they're designed that way. And then they engage the blood vessels that have the blood-brain barrier that relax and allow the drug uh, to go, to go into, into the brain. You can really see how your physics background came in handy here. Because it seems like even while approaching what is a very, very applied in an almost uncomfortable for those of us who are scientists way, you know, this is a very applied technique that's being done in, within the human body. But it seems like understanding the core physics is what's allowing you to sort of tilt the tool to do what you want it to do. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, it goes back to what we discussed earlier that you need every ounce of knowledge that you have been able to amass. And yeah, the physics comes into play. Uh, I always say as a scientist, you want to know, at least for us, you want to know your science, you want to know your physics, because, and physics has to be kind to you because in the end, no matter how many tools you have, and you think that you can make a difference, if you don't take into account, in this case, how the wave interacts with tissues, but also in the case of the brain, the physiology of the brain. So where is this blood-brain barrier? How does it work? What is, how do you relax it? So you can't just go blindly. Uh, I mean, you can, you can, but you, you can, but it's not gonna be a very successful um, endeavor uh, unless you understand the science behind it. I wanted to touch back on something you said earlier. That, so you said your mom, when you, were, when you were a child, your mom was getting her PhD in economics. Was she the, the, the PhD in your family growing up or do you have a family full of sort of scientists and engineers? So I've been very lucky uh, to have both my parents uh, with PhDs. So my, my dad has a PhD uh, in chemical engineering. So he works in petroleum engineering. And my mom, as I said, had a PhD in economics. And, uh, and I have uh, engineers in my family. And my uh, grandfather, uh, my paternal grandfather, had a PhD in mineral, um, in, wow. sorry, in mining. Yeah. yeah, so I would, you know, there was, <laughs> uh, yeah, I didn't have to preach PhD to anybody. And I, and I uh, yeah. Was there ever a time when you, was there ever a time when you thought, you know, I'm not going to go down this route, I, I want to be a, you know, jazz singer or a, <laughs> or a, a elementary school teacher or, or, or a race car driver? Like what, what, if you hadn't gone into the, into academia, what else do you think you'd be doing? That's a great uh, question. Um, I, I've always been mesmerized by science. I was always a geek. <laughs> 
and if uh, but I also like music uh, I play the guitar so I don't have much talent but I guess if I kept if I didn't do a science it would be something more artistic um so yeah maybe, maybe music related <laughs> yeah that's so hard too I don't know do you still play I do but yeah, it's hard to find time and my kids yeah. don't appreciate my playing. So, <laughs> uh, so but yeah, here and there, uh, I, you know, I, I try, I, I find time to do that. I think if we all didn't do the things that our kids didn't appreciate us doing, we wouldn't have much left. Um. I know, I completely understand. I know, they're the harshest critics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. You know, I think it's easy for people who aren't in an academic research environment to think of this as a pretty cushy job. You know, tenure sounds nice and you're setting your own schedule. And, you know, these pro projects you're working on go on for years. They're not on the sort of quarterly cycle that that most businesses are on. And it, it sounds like it's it's pretty cushy. And yet I know, having been at Columbia now 15 years, how incredibly hard the researchers at the university work. And yet it also seems to me that in science, it's really important probably to have that work-life balance, to have the times when you can step back and get outside of the lab and sort of rejuvenate and think and make time for those, those kind of big thoughts. How do you, how do you find the work-life balance um, to be and how do you manage to, to rejuvenate yourself? So for me, uh, as I said, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's very important to be fascinated uh, by science and research. And it's okay to get a PhD and not be fascinated, by the way. Um, it happens to, you know, some uh, some of my best colleagues, uh, they just find their calling elsewhere. Now, the PhD is a great uh, starting tool and, uh, and definitely teaches you how to think. So how to use this knowledge uh, that you have amassed. But if you really like research, if you like, I mean, the fascinating thing about research is, is that you get the bug, quote unquote, as I say. So all of a sudden you discover something, you see something for the first time, or you invent something for the first time, obviously that we do in engineering all the time. And, and you're fascinated by that. It's something that uh, keeps, you, keeps you going, even though you get multiple rejections on your grounds, on your papers. And that's a thing that downside of, of research, which um, if it doesn't, you know, if you don't find that uh, you have this calling, um, it gets old. So the fact that uh, to get a grant these days, uh, you have to keep at it for two years. To get a paper published, you have to also keep at it for two years, sometimes even more. So it is a cushy job from the point of view of tenure. Uh, I guess the fact that you have your job, you don't necessarily think you're going to get fired the next day. But it is not very cushy when you get, you know, we, we, you have to keep at it for so long and uh, and sometimes your students also have to keep at it for longer than they expect um, to get uh, the results uh, going as they expected. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so it has a lot of rewards like every other job, but it also has some downsides. Everyone finds that they get their energy from different sources. So for me, you know, there if you if you put me on a on a on a beach by myself and told me to think, I would go out of my mind. But I find, you know, all of my good ideas come from conversations with people and talking and working through things and iterating. Where do you get your big ideas from? Like, where do you find your moments where you can really think deep? 
So that that's also a great question. And I have to say, I, I, I don't, I'm not this kind of person that monitors myself. I'm not good at self-monitoring. So, but I did, um, but I did find over the years that for me, brainstorming, discussing with my students and my postdoc and my entire team, but also going to uh, outside of my lab, so to conferences and seminars and other universities. Uh, so feeding knowledge from, getting knowledge from uh, elsewhere um, and a different point of view, that's how jumpstart uh, uh, my brain. And then of course, reading papers, uh, reading other people's, uh, journal articles or, or grants even, because as a grant reviewer, you get also your ideas from there. And then of course, finding solutions. So like a bonafide and every engineer, it's like you, you rack your brain to solve a problem. That's obviously the definition of an engineer. And, uh, and while solving a problem, you can solve that problem, but if you're not lucky, to solve that problem, you're solving another one in the process. So persistence is key and uh, and uh, keeping at it, you invent. Um, so obviously the old saying, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. That's definitely, that's definitely, I think, the number one source uh, of inspiration for me. Dr. Kanafagu, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Oren. It was a lot of fun. 